Are zombies actually revolutionaries? What can zombie stories tell us about surviving a pandemic? How would I survive the zombie apocalypse? Coming up on Social Science Fiction. You're listening to Social Science Fiction, a podcast that blends political science and nerd culture, examining the politics of science fiction and fantasy. Hey everybody and welcome to week two of Halloween in horror themed episodes for October. This week we are talking about zombies. Because people asked for zombies, and because I had to do zombies at some point on this show, because zombies are, and always have been, inherently political. And if you're at all familiar with the history of zombies and zombie lore, zombie fiction, you probably know that the idea of the zombie originally goes back to Haitian folklore. And even in those days, you could make the argument that the zombie as a concept was wrapped up in politics. It was used for political purposes. Now, I'm absolutely not an expert on this topic, but from what little I've read, my understanding is the idea of zombies that develops in Haitian folklore, it grows from ideas brought to Haiti by African peoples that were enslaved by Europeans and then brought to Haiti to work in the fields. And the original Haitian idea of the zombie is essentially a person who has been enslaved through some kind of magic. Part of their soul has been stolen by somebody, and they thus lose their free will and are controlled by this person who controls the zombie. And it makes sense that the idea of the zombie, fear of a being that is permanently enslaved magically, the fear of becoming such a being, would develop and thrive in a culture of enslaved people. This was the horror Haitian slaves were living their entire lives. And apparently the slave masters who had to control the enslaved peoples of Haiti were aware of this and used this to their advantage. Apparently in these days, a lot of these slave masters who were themselves slaves, they were enslaved and used to keep the other slaves in line, were looking for ways to control the slave population and were also looking for ways to ensure that these enslaved peoples didn't kill themselves. Because if you're enslaved and living in such horrifically horrible conditions, suicide might look like a good option, a good escape. And so the African peoples being brought to Haiti, a lot of them had religious beliefs that in death they would return to Africa, they would return to some heavenly afterlife. And so some of these enslaved peoples who were put in charge of the other slaves, they were themselves immersed in Haitian culture. Some of them themselves were familiar with the practices of voodoo. And they allegedly used the threat of zombification as a means to prevent the other slaves from killing themselves. The threat was, if you kill yourself, we'll make you a zombie. Your soul won't return to Africa. You won't experience a heavenly afterlife. Instead, you will be enslaved for eternity. So this horrifying threat held over the heads of the enslaved people of Haiti used to keep them in line. So pretty much from the beginning, the idea of the zombie, something that's used for political purposes, something used by people in power to maintain control. The zombie wrapped up in ideas of slavery and freedom, zombification as being the supernatural embodiment of the very real horrors Haitian people were experiencing at the time, and the idea of escaping from zombification representing the idea of achieving freedom. 
And so as far as I can tell, this is the early development of the idea of the zombie. And of course, by the time we get to the 20th century, the zombie is something that has caught on in the United States and Europe. It's made the jump over here, and it's being adapted into American and European stories. And initially, early zombie stories in Europe and the United States seem to reflect, or at least come closer to reflecting, the reality of Haitian folklore about what zombies are. The first U.S. movie to feature zombies is the Bela Lugosi movie, White Zombie, in which Bela Lugosi plays a voodoo practitioner who attempts to turn a woman into a zombie, enslaving her. And so you have a story reflecting the basic concept of the zombie. It's something that magic is behind, and it's a tool for enslavement. And so it borrows from Haitian folklore, but it seems to reflect Western fears of other cultures. While the villain of the story, Bela Lugosi, is not African or Haitian himself, he is a practitioner of these Haitian arts, and he's out to use them to enslave the pretty white blonde woman. So there seems to be an element of, you know, look out for these evil foreign cultures. They're out to do us harm. So borrowing from Haitian culture, but obviously in a very negative way, portraying this culture as a dangerous thing. So that's the earliest American adaptation of the zombie. And still, in a negative way, but still drawing from the basic idea of what the zombie is in Haitian folklore. But of course, the zombie has morphed over time, and today, for the most part, in the United States, when we talk about the zombie, we're talking about something totally different. We've lost the voodoo elements, the religious elements, the idea of the zombie being an enslaved person, and we have this new idea of the horde of undead shuffling towards you, trying to eat your flesh. And of course, this begins with George A. Romero's classic movie, Night of the Living Dead. This is the movie that pretty much gives us what will become the modern American interpretation of the zombie. Dead bodies reanimated through science or technology or magic, whatever, who rise from the grave and go out to mindlessly devour the living. And it's interesting that at the time, Romero did not consider these creatures he was creating in this movie zombies. The term zombie is never used in the movie. Zombie doesn't come up until the sequel, Dawn of the Dead. In fact, Romero claimed he was largely inspired by the book I Am Legend, which itself was a book about creatures that were closer to vampires than anything else. And just Romero put his own spin on and changed them from vampires to slightly different undead creatures. And it was only later that critics and commentators of the movie noted the similarities to the Haitian zombie and started calling them zombies, and it sort of caught on from there. It's further interesting that while the classic traditional Haitian zombie is a being that embodies slavery and oppression, Romero intended his, not called zombies at the time, but zombies, to represent revolution. Romero would talk about how he saw this mass of bodies moving across the land, devouring everything in their path, kind of pulling down the old world. He saw this as representing the idea of revolution, as a mass movement that kind of just devours everything in its wake and pulls down the old world and leaves a new world behind. So we have the idea of the zombie kind of flipping entirely what it comes to mean, from representing oppression and slavery to representing rebellion and revolution. Now, of course, Night of the Living Dead is also notable for being a movie made in 1968 that stars a black man. 
And of course, over the years, people have seen all kinds of political, racial messages in this. The fact that a black man is cast as the hero at this time in American history. And along with this, the fact that this hero is shot and killed at the end of the movie, despite being the hero shot and killed by a mob of white men roaming around killing all the zombies. You can easily read all kinds of subversive political messages in this movie. But interestingly enough, Romero claimed that the casting of a black man for this movie was completely unintentional on his part. Romero claimed that he actually wrote the part with a specific actor in mind, a white man named Rudy Ricci, who would later go on to appear in the sequel, Dawn of the Dead. But according to Romero, when the actor Dwayne Jones tried out for the part, he and pretty much everybody involved agreed he was absolutely perfect. He played the part perfectly. He was just the right fit for this character. And so he was cast. And Romero further claimed that he made it a point not to change anything about the dialogue or about the character after this. He wanted the character to be non-racial. He did not want the fact that a black man was playing this character to mean that the character was now written as a black man. He wanted the character to just be sort of its own character. And Romero would later take some pride in this, saying that he was very happy that he wrote a part for a black man that didn't involve the character being specifically a black man. He just wrote a character and then cast a black man to play that character. And again, while this isn't intentional, apparently, Romero did not intend to communicate any sort of racial political message in the movie, it's hard not to watch the movie and have these ideas in mind. And further, knowing the history of zombies and so on, it's sort of a positive experience to watch a movie knowing that zombies were originally this thing that was used to oppress African slaves, and now, in 1968, they are being used in service of a movie in which a black man is the hero, is the star, and despite not coming out alive in the end, he's still the heroic character. So that's kind of cool. And so, again, we have the zombie as the embodiment of slavery, we have the zombie as revolutionary, and from there, after 1968 and Night of the Living Dead, over time, the zombie as a movie monster catches on, and now we have been flooded with zombie fiction, and we have seen zombies used to express every kind of political and social and cultural message it is. Zombies have come to represent everything from consumerism, to political indoctrination, to poverty, to religion, and on and on and on. For pretty much any political message you might want to deliver, you can probably find some form of zombie fiction that delivers that message. But I think today, the most common political message we get out of zombie fiction, what seems to come up again and again and again, it seems to be the thing that zombie writers seem to like to hammer on more than anything else, is a very Hobbesian message. Zombies, more often than not, seem to be used to represent chaos and anarchy. So many zombie stories seem to be about using zombies to just wipe away civilization, eliminate the state, eliminate police forces, eliminate any tool of social or political control and kind of put us back into what the political philosopher Thomas Hobbes called the state of nature. And Thomas Hobbes, English philosopher who wrote about the emergence of the state and political organization and so on, would talk about the state of nature being this time before the state, before government, when people just kind of lived in a state of anarchy, where there was no political power to keep them in line. And Hobbes 
argued that this state of nature was a horrible condition. It was a horrible way to live. He described it as nasty, brutish, and short. In other words, when there's no government, when there's no police, we can't trust each other. You know, we're going to turn on each other. We're going to be concerned about access to resources. We're going to be concerned about survival. And we're just going to be concerned because even if any of us as individuals don't want to hurt anybody else, we're always worried about what the other guy is going to do. We're afraid that if there's no police to keep people in line, then somebody else might come and kill us and take our stuff. So we better go and get them first. That was the general gist of what Hobbes described. The state of nature being this horrible condition. If there's no government, there's no common set of laws, there's no power over all of us to enforce a common law to keep us all in line, we're going to pretty much constantly be at war with one another. Maybe not openly killing each other, but at the very least, there's going to be so much suspicion that civilization won't work. We won't be able to work with one another, and life will just be miserable. And this is what Hobbes used to justify and explain the emergence of government, the emergence of the state. And it's what Hobbes used to justify a government with essentially unlimited authoritarian power. Hobbes, somebody who essentially said, once you have a government, do what it says. Any government, even a tyrannical one, is better than no government. The lack of government is so much worse than anything else we could experience. So better to have some form of political power because that state of nature is so terrifying. And so, seems like a lot of zombie fiction really hammers this theme. So many zombie stories involve the world sort of coming to an end, civilization at least coming to an end, because of the zombie apocalypse, and what's left behind is bands of survivors roaming around, fighting zombies, trying to survive. And these bands of survivors are essentially in a state of nature. There's no government over all of them. Everybody's just sort of out for themselves. And what we so often get in zombie stories is, this is a horrible existence. And it's all the more horrible because people don't trust each other because you end up with people killing each other in so many of these stories and I'm thinking things like the Walking Dead comic books possibly the TV show I never really got into the TV show but I know the Walking Dead comic books and a lot of other zombie movies and novels and so on the general theme is that the humans are always the bigger threat you know, you worry about the zombies, you fight the zombies, occasionally something bad happens with the zombies, but more often than not, the greater threat is roving bands of crazy human survivors who are just out to kill one another and take each other's stuff. That's usually the greater threat, and it's a very Hobbesian idea. If zombies wipe away the state, if there's no police, there's no government anymore, beyond the zombies, we'll just turn on each other. We can't be trusted to cooperate with one another. We need some power over us. That's the most common political message we get from zombie fiction today. And, you know, it's funny to think about, but in a way, the fact that zombies are more often used for this kind of message now would kind of seem to indicate that zombies have sort of come full circle, where the zombie in Haiti originally a tool of maintaining order, maintaining the status quo. It's the zombie is something that's used to tell people, don't fight the system, don't rebel, don't resist, just accept the system as it is, because if you don't acquiesce, if you don't accept your circumstances, if you try to fight it, what you'll get is so much worse. And then we go through a long period of zombies meaning different things, but we've sort of come back to now, zombies again representing a call to social order, a call to maintaining the status quo. Zombies serving as a warning, telling us, accept 
political order as it is, accept the system, because however much you might dislike the system, if it went away, things would be so much worse. You'd all be at each other's throats. You'd all be killing each other. So the zombie kind of coming full circle, initially being a tool of the status quo and returning to being a tool of the status quo, delivering the same message. Don't rock the boat. Don't fight the system. The system is better than what you'll get if you fight it. So an interesting way of looking at it. But again, of course, this is just, I think, the mainstream zombie idea. Of course, zombies can mean and have meant all kinds of other things over the years and still do. But since we're talking about zombies and the different iterations of zombies and political messages coming out of zombie fiction, I wanted to talk a little bit about what I think is my favorite zombie story of all time, the zombie book World War Z by Max Brooks. Now, if you've never read this story, I highly recommend it if you're into zombies, if you're into zombie fiction, and if you're into politics, and if you're into the blending of the two, this is well worth a read. Now, World War Z was written in 2006, again, by Max Brooks, who is actually the son of comedian Mel Brooks. And World War Z is framed as future history. Brooks writes World War Z as if he is a future journalist slash historian describing the events of a conflict that has already taken place. Very similar to some other science fiction stories like H.G. Wells' The Shape of Things to Come, which is written sort of as future history. And so in World War Z, Brooks tells us that about 20 years ago, a zombie outbreak began and almost destroyed the world. And roughly 10 years ago, humanity finally officially achieved victory. They finally took the planet back from the zombies. And there's still some pockets of zombies in different places. But basically, humanity has definitely defeated the threat and survived and is sort of now in the process of mopping up and bringing order back to the world. And so in this story, Brooks claims to be interviewing people who took part in the conflict for the sake of recording and preserving this history. And so essentially, World War Z is a story speculating about how the world would react if such a thing as a zombie apocalypse occurred. And again, it's one of my favorite zombie stories. In my opinion, it's got a great storyline, and it's clearly written by somebody who is interested in politics and did some research about the politics of different places and really tried to think about realistically how might different places respond to something like this. How might something like this occur? And so many political and social topics are covered in this story. So many things we're talking about, and we don't have time to get into nearly all of them, but so many good political and social ideas come out of this story, and a lot of them are very relevant for today. And so just some of this stuff to pull out of this story, and by the way, of course, heavy spoilers here, I really recommend you read this book before you listen to all of this. I mean, I'm not going to spoil the whole thing, but if you're interested in this book, definitely read it. And if you don't like spoilers, read it before you listen to the rest of this. But going forward, just the stuff that comes out of the book. In World War Z, the zombie outbreak begins in China. Somebody goes swimming in a lake, they get bit by something, they don't know what it is, but they catch what is apparently some ancient virus that's laid dormant for millennia, and they turn into the first zombie. They become patient zero for the zombie epidemic. And they bite some people, and then the virus starts to spread. And so here we have zombieism as a virus. We have it initially breaking out in China. And what the book tells us is China initially tries to 
cover this up. They try to keep quiet what's going on. They don't want to look weak to the rest of the world. So they try to lock down the country, eliminate the virus, but they also don't warn the rest of the world that something bad is going on. So virus beginning in China and the rest of the world doesn't really get a heads up and the opportunity to prepare for the coming pandemic because China tries to keep it quiet. Cough. Something that might seem somewhat relevant today. These are charges that China is facing at the moment related to the coronavirus. And so, of course, this might sound very prescient on the part of Max Brooks. Like, how did he predict this? How did he see this coming? But in fact, Max Brooks, of course, had no idea about coronavirus or what might come in the future. Max Brooks was thinking largely about the SARS pandemic that had happened before he wrote this story, where we had another virus that originates in China, and China is less than forthcoming about what's going on. So this is kind of a ongoing pattern with the Chinese government, and it's something that Max Brooks touches on and something that we are continuing to talk about today. But anyway, that's how the story begins. That's how the outbreak begins, and from there it spreads. Despite China's attempts to keep the country locked down to suppress the spread of zombieism, it gets out thanks in part to human trafficking, the black market sale and transportation of human organs, smuggling, and so on. So again, all political topics that we're talking about today, but because of these things, the virus gets out and spreads. And the first place to experience a major outbreak that the rest of the world is aware of is South Africa, where, again, thanks to human trafficking and human organ smuggling and so on, zombieism spreads to South Africa, they experience a major outbreak, and when news of this reaches the rest of the world, it gets termed African rabies. And people in the West end up in these early days basically writing it off, saying it's some weird mutation of rabies, it makes people a little more aggressive, but it's just some weird African disease. And so here, Brooks making commentary about how the West views political and social problems in the third world, arguing that we in the West tend to ignore crises, ignore serious problems happening in Africa, in Asia. We basically term these things African problems, third world problems, and tend to ignore them. And in the case of zombieism, we ignore them at our own peril. So Brooks making a commentary on how the West tends to view problems, view crises in the rest of the world, and making a comment seemingly on how how the way we frame topics affects the way we think about them. Initially, Brooks says the outbreak of zombieism gets called African rabies, and because of this, Americans, Westerners, just ignore it. The fact that it's called something that makes it very foreign, and the fact that we call it something that's related to a disease that we're already familiar with, makes it just less scary, feel less present. And that, in part, contributes to the failure of the West to confront the issue and try to deal with it. Other political stuff to come out of World War Z. Brooks arguing that Israel ends up being one of the few countries to take the threat seriously right off the bat. They lock down their country immediately, they close their borders, and they prepare for the coming zombie hordes. And the argument Brooks making here is that this is a result of Israeli history and their political attitudes, the history of Israel being surrounded by potential enemies, their experiences with the Yom Kippur War, where Israel, not expecting that they they could be attacked, are surprised when their neighbors launch a sneak attack, and while Israel ends up winning the war, they suffer significant losses, and it is a serious blow to Israeli morale. And so Brooks arguing this history would make Israel particularly willing to pay attention to this kind of threat. They would be more likely to take it seriously because their history tells them, consider any threat no matter how unlikely it is. 
And Brooks further saying that when Israel ultimately locks itself down, they try to withdraw into their borders, they end up surrendering control of Jerusalem, and this leads to a brief civil war in Israel where the ultra-conservative, orthodox population of Israel become outraged at the idea that Israel is surrendering Jerusalem, so speaking to the internal politics of Israel at the time, and something that continues to today, the ongoing conflict between more conservative elements of the Israeli political establishment and population who believe in the idea that Israel must encompass the original biblical borders of Israel versus the more liberal political establishment and population who are open to trading land and possibly part or all of Jerusalem for the sake of establishing a meaningful, lasting peace with Palestine. World War Z also touching on the issue of refugees and refugee crises, something that happens on a global scale as zombie outbreaks occur all over the world and people in the worst hit cities and countries seek to flee. You have refugees flooding across borders and you have countries trying to find a way to deal with this crisis. How do you absorb and accommodate large numbers of people coming to you with nothing? And further, how do you separate refugees from potential threats from people who are infected and who will soon become zombies and a threat to your survival. In fact, the book tells us that this sort of refugee crisis is what sparks a brief and totally destructive nuclear war between Iran and Pakistan, as Iran attempts to stop refugees from Pakistan from entering their borders. So speaking to the challenges of a refugee crisis, and also interesting that in this book, Brooks essentially predicting that in the future, Iran will acquire nuclear weapons, something that hasn't happened yet, but something we off and on still talk about politically. And also interesting that Brooks saying not only will Iran acquire Acquire nuclear weapons, but more likely that Iran and Pakistan will experience a nuclear exchange, which I think a lot of political scientists and international relations scholars would say is not as likely as Pakistan and India experiencing some kind of nuclear exchange. That's been the concern of people studying that region for a long time now. You have India and Pakistan, both with nuclear weapons, both involved in sort of their own little cold war, their own standoff, pointing their nuclear weapons at each other. But Brooks saying, no, it's not going to be India-Pakistan, it's going to be pakistan Iran. Iran, and is going to be over refugees. Oh, and one other good political element from the story. Brooks tells us that the zombie outbreak first really begins, the first big outbreak occurs in South Africa. We're also told South Africa ends up surviving it and sort of developing the playbook for how to fight off the zombies, how to survive. And it's a strategy that involves essentially withdrawing into certain defensible areas and sacrificing large chunks of the population to the zombies for the sake of slowing the zombies down so people can consolidate in those more defensible areas. And Brooks telling us that this is essentially a modification of a plan that was developed by the South African government in the days of apartheid. Brooks arguing that during the apartheid era when you had a non-democratic, authoritarian, white minority government oppressing the black African population, essentially the government was terrified of the black population launching a democratic uprising and overthrowing them and were coming up with all kinds of plans to survive in the event that the people rose up against them and essentially that they've modified this plan to fight not a democratic uprising but a zombie outbreak. So all kinds of really interesting, really great 
political commentary coming out of this story, and, and I haven't really touched on half of it. In World War Z, Brooks touches on totalitarianism in North Korea and talks about how the North Koreans might survive a zombie outbreak. There's so much commentary on American culture, how Americans would view such a thing, how Americans would survive. There's a lot of veiled references to the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq. Although he doesn't specifically reference Afghanistan or Iraq by name, it's very clear that Brooks is making references to these U.S. wars at various points in the book. There's commentary on military technology, what kind of technology would likely work or wouldn't in the event of a zombie apocalypse, commentary on military and political propaganda, the sort of messages that countries would use to keep people fighting for a cause in the event of some kind of conflict. So much great stuff in this book. And if you're into politics and nerd stuff, something you have to read if you haven't already. And I just say, finally, I think the big theme that really comes out of World War Z is the reason the zombies almost win, the reason the zombies almost destroy the world, is because most of the world fails to take the threat seriously until it's too late. Even as these outbreaks are occurring in Africa and Asia, most of the world, especially the West, sort of shuts its eyes to the threat, assumes it's some problem that's happening in the third world, and really don't pay attention to it until it's already a serious problem within their own borders. And if you are paying attention at all to commentary on the coronavirus right now, how various countries are handling that, this is all going to sound very familiar. I don't know if Brooks has been asked about any of this, but I imagine Brooks would be saying right now, yeah, this is sort of the kind of thing I wrote about. People won't pay attention to some kind of pandemic, zombie or otherwise, until it's too late or almost too late. So does the world's response to coronavirus say something about our chances of surviving a zombie outbreak? I know I've seen people on Twitter making some pretty negative arguments there, but something worth thinking about. And so that's a brief discussion of the political history of the zombie and my favorite zombie story ever. Thank you for listening. And side rant. Today, my plan for surviving the zombie apocalypse. Now, like any good nerd, I've thought lots about this over the years. What would I do if there was a zombie uprising? How would I survive? And I've talked to people about it and read all kinds of essays by other people about what they do and how they survive. And I have to say, I think most people are getting it wrong. You see the people who talk about having bunkers full of guns and canned goods. You have the people that talk about going to the mall and fortifying there. None of this makes sense to me. And I think the problem is we've been ruined by a lot of zombie fiction that likes to play up the action and excitement and drama of zombies and really doesn't portray the more likely threats of some kind of apocalypse. Gotta say, I think in the long run, if something like this happened, if civilization came to an end because of zombies, it's not the zombies that are going to get you. It's not even the roving bands of crazy evil people like you get in The Walking Dead that are going to kill you. It's the climate and it's starvation. Those are the things that are going to get you. The zombies, unless it's those fast ones. If, if it's the fast ones, all bets are off. I might just kill myself. Those things are terrifying. But assuming it's the traditional slow-moving zombie, those things aren't going to kill you. You're, you're fine. You can outspeed walk them. 
Don't do anything stupid. You're fine. You don't need a bunch of guns to fight them off either. And the roving marauders who are going to go around killing people and taking their stuff, far more likely these guys are going to kill each other off in the first month of the zombie apocalypse. I, I just don't think they're that much of a threat. Keep your head down. Let them kill each other off. They're, they're fine. They'll kill each other. And if they don't do that, they'll starve to death because they're going to be too busy fighting each other to actually figure out where their next meal is going to come from. Now, if something happens, what we have to worry about is freezing to death because there's no more heat or electricity and starving to death because no one's producing food anymore. And so these traditional plans for surviving the apocalypse just never made sense to me. You're going to hole up in a bunker with some canned goods and guns. Well, I mean, yeah, the canned goods are good, but what happens when you run out? Then where's your next meal coming from? And the whole, I'm going to go to the mall and there's lots of food and supplies there and I'm going to fortify that. Well, yeah, you and every other dipshit that saw Dawn of the Dead, you're going to have 500 people showing up at this mall, bringing all these zombies to them. How much food is there to go around in these places? No, my plan is simple. I am grabbing whatever supplies I can find in my home, whatever canned goods I've got, whatever I can use for a weapon, and I'm getting me and any friends or family that could stand being around me during the end of the world, and we are heading south. We are going to drive if we can, walk if we can't, and just go as far south as we can, hopefully get to Florida. And the plan is let's just get somewhere where freezing to death is less likely. And from there, it is find some fishing rods and learn to fish. And if you got someone with the skills, learn to farm. Because those are the things that are going to make the difference between survival or not. Being somewhere where you don't need heat constantly to survive and having a steady flow of food. If you can get fish out of the ocean, if you can farm for basic necessities, these are the things that are going to keep you alive. Forget the zombies, forget the Mad Max style marauders. It's food and weather that are going to kill you. So that's my plan. Go south, become a fisherman or a farmer. And I realize this is boring, and this is why this is never portrayed in zombie fiction. People want to see a heroic figure clubbing a zombie to death and fighting off dudes with guns. No one wants to see a guy sitting in an old abandoned library reading books on crop rotation and basic agriculture. But that's the stuff you actually got to do if you want to survive. At least that's my take. So, what do you think? Anything I'm missing from this? Anything I'm overlooking? How would you survive the zombie apocalypse? Let me know. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. As always, I love to hear from you. Let me know what you like, what you don't like. Let me know if you have suggestions for topics for future episodes. Please consider subscribing and reviewing. And as always, you can be in touch with me on social media, on Twitter, at Social Sci-Fi Show, on Facebook, at Social Science Fiction Podcast, on Instagram, at Social underscore Sci underscore Fi, and you can email me at SocialScienceFictionShow at gmail.com. New episode every Tuesday. We are halfway through our October Halloween celebration. We got two more horror and Halloween-themed episodes coming up. So keep listening and see you next week.